Well, special thanks to our uh, choir and orchestra who last night participated in the outdoor concert at the shops of Mount Pleasant as a gala celebration, gave a strong witness for Christ. Uh, I should say our choir, orchestra, and swim team because it rained. Uh, so pray that in two weeks they'll be over their coals and the rusted instruments so we can enjoy a great Christmas concert. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the day and pray now that you would take the Word of God and make application to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Frances Chadwick, the first woman to swim across the English Channel. She did so in... 1951 or 1950, she went from France to England, 20.6 miles and 13 minutes and uh, or 13 hours and 20 minutes. That's a long way to swim. It's a long way to ride, much less swim. Next year, she went from England to France. Took her 16 hours because of the contrary current. And so this uh, athlete started training for her next event, and she decided to swim from Catalina Island to Los Angeles, which is 26 miles. And so she went into the waters and she started swimming those 26 miles. She was surrounded by a small flotilla of boats, including her family and her mom, to encourage her, to protect her, and to keep the sharks away. So after 15 hours swimming and the cold and the fog had just rolled in, you couldn't see in front of you, she looked at her mom and said, I'm done. I can't do it. I just can't do it. And her mom said, I, I don't know how far we are from the shore, but can you just keep going? She says, I can't. I'm done. I'm spent. And so even though they played with her, she, they pulled her in the boat. She toweled off. And as she toweled off and had some hot drink, the fog lifted just a little bit. And they saw that she was less than 600 yards from, the, from Los Angeles. And the next day at a press conference, this is what Florence Chadwick said, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Well, this morning I'm going to talk to you about the hope of heaven. This is an incredibly practical study, incredibly practical. It may seem to be a little bit, no, it's practical. And here's my, my, my point is this. We live in the fog. We live in a culture where Little is ever said about eternity. If nothing, we live in a culture where even we just don't hear about it. For example, this is a stack of newspapers called the Wall Street Journal. It's a good newspaper. I like it. I read it every day, six days a week. And uh, it's conservative, great editorial page, good writers. International news, just a good newspaper. But when they do an obituary, or when they talk about 5,200 people killed in the Philippines because of a horrific typhoon, it never says something like this. And those people have gone to their eternal reward, even something as innocuous as that. They never talk about eternity at all. This is a conservative newspaper. Or The Economist is another magazine from Britain. And they always have in the back two obituaries, full-page obituaries about somebody in the world that's died. And never does it say they've gone to be with the Lord. They've gone into eternity. We listen, we live in the fog. We live in the fog. The zeitgeist, the, the spirit of our age, it's, it's just a fog. And that's why in Philippians, uh, Paul is talking about two different groups, and he says there's one group, us, B 
believers, he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, we, we, we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh when it comes to our salvation. It's all about Christ. It's all about the cross. And he says, converse, so there's another group. Verse 19 of chapter 3 says, their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there who will transform our lowly, broken-down, aging, decrepit bodies to be like his glorious body, resurrection bodies. And, and so, for example, in, Col- in the book of Colossians, there's a group of people that were saying the best way to conquer the flesh is to don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that. And, and Paul says, you know, th- those things are, are good. They have the appearance of wisdom, verse 23, chapter 2, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, the, the don't-do crowd and in severity to the body, but they are of no value, ultimately, in restraining or stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's like Paul says, I'm going to show you a better way. I'm going to show you a better way. I'm going to show you the best way. If then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above, not on earthly things, set your mind on the things above. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. It's practical. If, if I'm going to be used of God and live the way God has called me to live, I've got to have a supernatural orientation. I've got to realize that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I've got to realize my citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait a Savior from there who will take our pain and our groans and our broken down bodies and our cancer and our heart disease and our scoliosis and he'll give us resurrection bodies. And I love people in light of eternity. And I use my, my gifts and my stewardship in light of eternity. Very practical. Incredibly practical. And so come to the text I want to look at today. So we're going through 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5 through chapter or verse 9. Listen. He who has prepared us for this, this glory, this very thing, is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You've received the Holy Spirit. If you're Christ's follower, you've received the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, for, for we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. See, we want to please the Lord. I love the way Paul says we are always of good courage. Good courage means we we think correctly, we live correctly, we live with boldness and a purposeful mindset. It's a great word. He says, we are always of good courage. We we, we live this way. We we long to to be the people that God has called us to be. We are always of good courage. 
And I, I look at this and I go, God, I, I want to live that way. We are always of good courage. And so as I look at this, I think about two perspectives and a couple of points. Listen, perspective number one is when I, when I have a heavenly mindset, when I live with a supernatural orientation, when I'm not consumed by the, the spirit of the age, but the spirit of God, then I affirm what really counts. See, in chapter 4, verse 16, the apostle said, so, so we do not lose heart because of resurrection and the coming of Christ. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, we look not on the things that are seen because they're passing. We look on the things that are unseen because that is eternal. This light and momentary affliction, I said last week, that include being beaten with Rods, being shipwrecked, being left stoned for dead, being snake bit. Light momentary affliction, Paul? Yeah, compared to eternity. So, so it, it brings perspective to our lives. And, and we think about the way we should live. There's a dear woman in our church that died just a couple of years ago named Beth Bolches. Delightful. Fun-loving. And she would occasionally say to me, you know, you realize, I realize I'm wearing purple. And she would laugh. She referred to a poem. Let me read this poem to you. It's entitled Warning. Warning. When I am an old woman, I shall wear purple with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. And I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say, we've no money for butter. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along the public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. I shall go out in my slippers in the rain and pick flowers in other person's gardens and learn to spit. You can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausages at a go or only bread and pickle for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. But now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children. We must have friends to dinner and read the papers. But maybe I ought to practice a little now. So people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I am old and start to wear purple. <laughs> well, what arrested my attention is maybe we ought to practice a little now. I thought about a poem by a man named John Donne, the great poet from England and, and pastor entitled Hymn to My God. Just two short stanzas. Listen. Done right, since I am coming to that holy room where with thy choir of saints forevermore I shall be made thy music as I come. I tune my instrument here at the door and what I will do then I think here before. We think the paradise in Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree stood in one place and look, Lord, and find both Adam's meet in me. 
As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. He says, you know, since since I'm I'm coming to that that wonderful and glorious place called heaven, I tune my instrument here at the door, and what I must do then, I think here before I'm practicing. Glory awaits. And so I live with a supernatural orientation. Shouldn't we be practicing even now? What really counts? Here's this book called The Triumph of Christianity by a historian named Stark. It talks about how the church grew in the early centuries. And he said, one reason the church grew, he said, in 165, there was a, a plague that swept through the Roman Empire. We think it may have been the first strain of smallpox. 25 to 33% of the people died. And, and the pagans, and when we say pagan, historically speaking, people who worshiped a plethora of gods or, or polytheism. The pagans fled the city, went to the countryside because they realized that contact with humans would make them sick. And the pagans, when their friends or even family members were sick, would just push them out the door and let them die. Christians, conversely, bathed and clothed and fed and nourished their loved ones, and the vast majority survived. That's one reason the church grew, because everybody else was dying in the plague. Let me just read a couple things he said. This is just a couple paragraphs. He said, in the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating plague swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspect there was the first appearance of smallpox. Whatever the actual disease, it was lethal, killing up to one-third of the population. During the 15-year duration of the epidemic, it killed hundreds of thousands of people. At the height of the epidemic, mortality was so great in many cities that the emperor Marcus Aurelius, who died of the disease, wrote of caravans of carts and wagons, one after another, that would haul out the dead. And the pagans just exposed people. But what else could they do? He says, what about prayers? Well, if one went to the temple to pray, one discovered that the priests were not there because they'd fled to the countryside. They had done so because there was no belief that the gods cared about human affairs. God didn't care. It was thought that they sometimes could be bribed to grant wishes, but the idea of a merciful, caring God was utterly alien, especially God who invaded human history, became a man, and died on the cross for our sins. He goes on and says this. We must keep that in mind, the reaction of the pagans to the Christians. We must keep that in mind when we compare the reactions of Christians and pagans in the shadow of death. Christians believed in life everlasting because of the cross and the empty tomb. And most pagans believed in an unattractive existence in the underworld. Thus for Galen, one of the leading physicians in Rome at that time, to have remained in Rome to treat the afflicted during the first great plague would have required far greater bravery than was needed by Christians. I'll say that again. For him to stay required far greater bravery because they just believed if you die and went to the netherworld that cannot be defined, we believe to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And so while death can be horrible and dying can be very hard, death is not the final word. See, that's, that's what you're called, living out your worldview. Incredibly important. And another perspective, as I looked at this text, I just thought that when you understand that glory awaits and you understand you live in a fallen world that's filled with battles and blessings and the, and the, the best of us are still men and women. 
One of my favorite statements I do say frequently is when the Puritan said, even our tears of repentance must be bathed in the blood of Christ. This section is filled with sinners. So is this section, this section, this section up there in the gym. It's okay to not be okay because Jesus is working on us. And so, so when, I bring, when I bring that to life, I, I think of the weight that we bring to life and the demands we put on life. And, and, and oftentimes we demand things of people, responses, consistency, that they just can't bear as human beings who are far from perfect. Example, you're in a tank, a Sherman tank, weighs 30.3 tons. It's big. You're going to a foreign country. You come to a bridge, and it's a long bridge over a deep 2,000-foot chasm. And you get out your application on your iPod. The translation says this bridge can bear up to 20 tons. Your tank weighs 30 tons. You call your commanding officer and says, Sir, the bridge cannot bear this tank. And he says, Listen, we've got to get across the river. We've got to establish a beachhead. We've got to make this invasion. I want you to do it. Just do it. Just go for it. And you go, is anyone else there I can talk to? No. Not a good mathematician, but 20 minus 30 is minus 10 is 2,000 feet. I think about life. I think about marriages and parenting. I think about this quote by John Calvin. I have it out here. Calvin says, People without Christ think they will ere long cease to exist and they place in this life the highest and utmost summit of their happiness. We believers, on the other hand, live in the exercise of contentment and go forward to death with cheerfulness because a better hope is laid up for us. And what he's saying is there is that, is that people, people with, without a supernatural orientation put too much pressure on the bridge. They're driving a Sherman tank over a bridge that can't hold them. Marriage. I'm, I'm happily married. I love my wife. But I heard a song this week. You know, sometimes you hear a song and it just bores into your brain. I haven't heard this song. This song was popular in the early 70s, okay? I haven't heard it in forever. But I just, I remembered all the words and I Every spare moment, I'm singing this dippy, stupid song. So pray that I be released from that. I just, I, mean, I was working in the yard yesterday, and I, just started, I was trying to sing some hymns, and all of a sudden I started singing this song. It's called More Today Than Yesterday. Some of you start, can sing it with me, my age or older. I'll just, I don't remember what time, day it was. I don't remember what time it was. All I know is that I fell in love with you, and if all my dreams I'll be spending time with you. Here's the course. I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. I love you more today than yesterday, but darling, not as much as tomorrow. I love you more today than yesterday. That's just junk. <laughs> All these stupid love songs we sing, now listen, 
do you really go home to your spouse and say, hey, baby, I love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. Come on. Nobody can bear that weight. If you had a horrible day yesterday, it might be true, but come think about it. Or just the weight of expectations. I love weddings, and I did this wedding. I've done just a few weddings where they'd write their own vows. I always discourage you because you're nervous, and it's just hard to... But anyway, this guy said, I'm, I'm a, I, he's a believer, I trust him, I'm going to write my own vows. I'm not going to tell anybody, even you, I just want everybody here for the first time when I look to my, my wife-to-be. So I'm standing there. I said, you know, I'm standing I'm trying to look holy, I'm standing there in a robe. <laughs> and so I say the, the, the bride and the groom have written their own vows, they'll now recite them to each other and to us for the first time. So he turns to his wife-to-be, and he says this, I promise to never be angry with you. <laughs> Listen, that's a vow before God. You know, a vow is a solemn promise before God, and if you don't keep it, boom. He takes you out. The guy died four days later. Just kidding. <laughs> but I, mean, but I mean, I'm standing there and I think, I can't believe he said that. And I'm trying not to just go, come on. But just, just think of the enormous weight we put only the hope of heaven brings things in perspective. The outward man is perishing, inner man is being renewed. These light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, we don't look on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're, they're temporary, but the unseen things, they are eternal. Eternal perspective. Then I thought about a few hymns, a couple of hymns about, listen, just, let me just read a we're marching to Zion, Isaac Watts, 1645. He says, Come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in the song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. It says, The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. It says, you know, a glorious day is coming. But even in the present context, there is sweetness to life. But the real sweetness is coming. You see, that's what I'm talking about. Or this, this hymn that the orchestra played, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? Then he says, no, no chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that helpful shore, the shore of heaven. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. I'm bound. See, so this is so incredibly practical. And so I, I look at this and I say to myself, self, how do you get there? What does the text say how, how I get there? Two points. Number one, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, so I, I've got to be filled with, taught by, driven by, Comforted by the Holy Spirit, my guarantee. He's given us the Spirit. If you're a Christ follower, you have received the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible says don't grieve the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. 
Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. I say to myself, self, be very careful to go hard for Christ. I need the Spirit to teach me to live this way because the culture around me, no matter how good it is, will not. I'm going to live with heaven in view. I don't want the fog to cloud my vision. And that's why I left, put in the study sheet, chapter 18, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says we can lose our assurance of salvation by neglect and sin. Neglect or sin. I, so, so I say, you know, I've got to repent. I've got to be a repenting man. I, I've got to be a person who is aggressively going forward in Christ and who understands justification and the glory of Jesus and who walks in humility. Let's open the word and say, God, speak to me. And I need it. And Tim Keller's written a little thing on repentance. This is what he says. So good. The purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Jesus in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. You tap into the beauty and the glory of Christ so that the power and the allure of sin diminishes. Boy, I need that. I was reading Ezekiel. Ezekiel's preaching to the southern kingdom saying, please repent, repent. In Ezekiel 14, he talks about the people making idols. And this is, this is what he says. Ezekiel 14, verse 3, 2 and 3. He says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. I see a progression there. You make an idol, even over a good thing, but it replaces your allegiance to Christ. You take, take an idol, and you, then, then you make it, then you plant it in your heart, and it becomes a stumbling block. I, I, I need the power of the Holy Spirit. So number one is the power of the Spirit. Number two is, is, is to think biblically. That's what the text says. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. For, for we know that if the tent that is our heavenly or earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know this, verse 6. So we are always of good courage, for we know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we have good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, but whether we're at, in the body or away from the body, we make it our aim to please Him. So twice here he says, we know, we know. And then in Romans 8, the same concept, Paul says, for I am convinced, or I reckon, or I consider, listen, verse 18, 8, 18. For I consider, the ESV says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider it. I think, I ponder upon it. It gets down in my mind and my heart. I consider. The same word is used in chapter 6, verse 11. It says this, so you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider, count, 
think about. The, the word here, really, it is a, a mathematical term. It is a public accounting term. It means to think soberly, to think rationally, to get it down into your heart. And I say to myself, you know, if, if I'm going to be heavenly minded, I've got to ponder the words of the Bible. I've got to pray them into my life. I, I've got to think with great sobriety and to calculate. You see, if we say to somebody in our context, he's a calculating person, that's not a compliment. But when you speak biblically, it's a great compliment. He's calculating, thinking, pondering the word into his life. Do you realize that heaven awaits? Do you realize you one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ? In two weeks, we'll talk about that. Do you, do you realize the, the glory? Do you realize resurrection body? Do you realize the view of, uh, of worship? Do you realize unending labor and joy and banqueting? It is there. Do you realize that while the body is being decaying, you're being renewed in your inner man as you run to the cross, as you go to the Bible, as you pray, Holy Spirit, come, teach me, as you ponder, 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 think biblically. Think biblically. In Matthew, Christ is the Sermon on the Mount. And in, in Matthew 6, he says, verse 19, regarding stewardship of time, talent, resources, and life, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For moth and rust cannot corrupt, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. Then he takes a little break. Then he goes back to possessions. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. How, how's he made the application between these two mountain peaks is an application of humility. Listen. Between these statements about money and life, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be flooded with light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be flooded with darkness. If then the, the light within you is darkness, how fast is that darkness? It's a horrific statement. What you look at, what you value, what you purpose is the light in your spirit. If you look upon the things of Christ and the glory of heaven and the hope of heaven and the joy of God's revelation and the purpose that he brings to your life, your body will be flooded with light. But if you don't, if you don't get this, your body will be flooded with darkness and you'll live in the fog. And if that happens, Jesus says, how vast is the darkness? How vast? I want to be heavenly minded. I want to love people in light of eternity. I want to respond to people in light of eternity. There's a man sitting here, and I thought about this four or five times in the last two days. Oh, man, years ago, years ago, I was involved in a personal conflict, and I was hurt and angry and wanted to punch the wall and cry at the same time. I went to this guy. We talked and prayed, and he said, you know, one day we'll all be in heaven, and this won't make any difference. <laughs> I thought, wish I thought of that. 
Where should I throw that? Florence Chadwick. 26 miles, Catalina to L.A. She didn't make it. Two months later, she tried again. Same group of people. Same effect. As she started swimming, the cold descended. The fog came in. She couldn't see. But she finished. And when she finished, this is what she said. She said, I kept a mental image of the shoreline in my mind. Isn't that great? I kept a mental image of the shoreline in my mind. That's what Paul means when he says we walk by faith and not by sight. We look at eternity. We keep it there. Here's a, this Thanksgiving week, great week. Just ask yourself, what will I do this week in light of eternity? How will I live differently? Don't, don't, don't expect the culture to prop you up. It won't. What will I do in light of eternity this week? Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you for the day of worship and to be with your people. Um, I am uh, aware that I need to be a repenting man, that I need to be aggressive in pursuing you, that I need to be centered on Christ, that I need to be desperately teachable. And I, I just pray that we would walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, even, even the best corners of our culture, publications like conservative newspapers, just don't say it. So we have to say it to each other repeatedly. We have to open the Bible and say it repeatedly, repeatedly. I thank you above all things on this Thanksgiving week, on this wonderful American holiday. I thank you that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord because of the cross of Jesus. I thank you that death is not the final word. I thank you that disease is not the final word. I thank you for resurrection bodies. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.